and this is your friendly neighborhood podcast about living in Iraq. Where we both lived for combined 11 years. That's right, so we know all the things. Except for the things we bring in the guests for. So, this week is part two of the history of Iraq. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, you really should, or you're going to be deeply confused. I mean, it might be confusing anyway. Yeah, we make no guarantees. But everything worked out just fine, and it's all going swimmingly from then on. (laughs) Yay, British, you solved all the problems. The British, as they started this Iraq mandate area, and they, they sort of had a put a guy in there to sort of govern the area and, and run it. I believe he had done a good job in India. Um, they brought him in to run it. And after a number of years and a number of revolts and a number of just insurgencies rising up, they're like, this isn't working so well. We've got to get out of here. So they came up with a plan like, well, let's let's find a king and let's put the king over Iraq. So they went, I believe it was to Jordan, and they got a king. At the king's door? <laughs> they went to kings or us, and they got a king who apparently was related to um, uh, of the same clan as Muhammad, the prophet. Oh, so, okay. Um, so they put thought into it. They put it wasn't thought into just it. like, you seem like you could be a good king. But he was, he was Sunni. And oh. most of Iraq Oops. is what? Shiite. Shiite. So he was a Sunni king. His name was King Fazl. And when they, he was at one time the king of Syria. He had been exiled. But they brought him in and set him up. And they... <laughs> it didn't work out in Syria. Here's your second chance. <laughs> Try again. This time it'll work out, right? Well, this is going to go perfectly. I don't know a lot of European history, but it looks like in Europe they get their... their they go find kings from other countries and sure. marry, you know, they sort of... Stick them in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, look, yeah. work. Now you belong. Yeah. So, yeah, they got Fazl from Kings or Us in Syria <laughs> on discount price and brought him in. And they Slightly were, used. <laughs> slightly used. Second hand. So they had a deal with them. That the deal was, you can run a rock. Uh, anything big comes up, let us know. We need to approve it. And, of course, the oil is uh, ours. This, uh-huh. Any oil deals need to go to the British Petroleum Company. The king signed a treaty guaranteeing the oil rights. They set him up as king. And I think it was on the day that he was sworn in, or soon thereafter, he was, they were sort of interviewing him, and he said a very profound comment. He said, there's not an Iraqi in all of Iraq. What did he mean by that? that that's what it is. Iraq is a man-made, a, a politically made country Nobody in Iraq considered themselves an Iraqi. And I think today, when you watch the news, or when we talk with our our friends from Iraq, I mean, here in Nashville, it's easy to meet somebody from Iraq, but they'll be in the grocery store, where are you from? They say, I'm from Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Where, are you, where are you from? I'm from Baghdad. Or they'll say I'm the from city. Basra, or, what, yeah. what country are you from? Kurdistan. Or, uh, yeah. or I'm a Syrian. Or uh-huh. I'm Turkmen. Or... Um, you're starting to hear people say, I'm from Iraq, and you're starting to have, have a little bit of that. But that's, I would say that's very secondary. If, if you meet somebody from Iraq, their idea of being an Iraqi is not high on their list of identity. Their, their <laughs> not religion. Not after 100 years. Yeah, their, their um, ethnic identity goes years. back further than 100 years. Mm-hmm. They would say, I'm a Syrian, I'm Chaldean, Can. I'm Turkmen, I'm Yazidi, I'm... They would say that before they say I'm Iraqi. So they picked uh, Fazl from, yeah, Kings or Us. <laughs> <laughs> Three or four months after he was selected, 
Winston Churchill, who was instrumental in this whole process, I think, mm-hmm. and a little quote here, he said, um, somebody give me a note about three lines about Fossil. Is he a Sunni with Shiite sympathies or a Shiite with Sunni sympathies or how does he square? I always get this mixed up. <laughs> so, so there was some thought went into it, but there was also a lot of confusion that went into it. Is this like between the World Wars or after? This is after World War One. After World yeah, War One, yeah. There was a series of kings that followed, and they're propped up by the British government um, during World War Two. The King of Iraq, um, I don't know who it was at that time. I can't remember, but the King of Iraq made a um, secret deal with the Germans. Well, I mean, they'd been on the side of the Germans. In World War One, Yeah, so they cut a secret deal, and they said, look, if you guys will get the British off our back, then when the war is over, y'all can have all the oil. Uh-huh. So that was the deal. This is, uh, I think, the second time around that the British then launched a bunch of ships, landed a bunch of troops in Kuwait, mm-hmm. marched their way north to Baghdad, took about three or four weeks, and uh, Iraq was under British control again. So that sounds similar to more modern occurrences. More modern the same occurrences, event. same yeah. thing. Like, well, we just march in and switch out the government for something new. Right. So the British came in, they set up a government again, and sort of had a in control of it. And after a few years, they're like, this is not going well. There's insurgencies, there's rebellion, there's, there's attacks. This is total chaos. They don't want us here. We gotta find somebody else to run the country. We gotta get out of here. So they set a deadline, so we're gonna get out of here. So this is, uh-huh. has happened yet one more time. <laughs> Huh, that doesn't sound familiar at all. They put leaders in place, and those leaders eventually begin to ally themselves with Russia, which mm-hmm. got the U.S.'s interest, so the U.S. steps in and tries to, you know... Like, uh, oh, well, maybe now we'll take care of yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, we think of Saddam Hussein as the arch enemy of America, but for years and years and years, he was our ally in the Middle East. Hmm. To hold off the Russians. Yeah. 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 So the U.S. began to give uh, the Iraqi government military aid to sort of be a buffer against the Soviet Empire. So here you see, you know, the the Persians want a buffer against Greece, and the Greece wants a buffer against the Persians, and the Mongols want a buffer against this, and the Turks want a buffer against that. So here you have the U.S. wants a buffer against Russia, and Russia wants a buffer against westward expansion. So it's the same. It's Mesopotamia the, becomes the, 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 the buffer football. zone. The football being yeah. back and forth. Yeah. So that sort of brings you all the way up to the time of Saddam Hussein. You had a number of rulers that would kill the one in front of them and take charge. Um, but during this whole season from World War One up to close to present day, it was mainly Sunni leaders governing. A, they were minority Sunni leaders governing a majority Shiite population. Hmm. But they were propped up by uh, Western money for their military and, and kept in place. So, did they still act as the strong man to their people? Or because they were propped up by the West, did they not really have that kind of respect or that kind of power? No, I think they were strong men in their own country. And I think this is something that's hard for us in America to appreciate, or maybe we do, but the whole strongman mentality. If you have a strong leader, if he's on your side, good. If he's not, bad. But across the Middle East, I've, you know, they put, they, take pictures of the strongman in the taxi cabs. Mm-hmm. They love their strongman that he has mm-hmm. 87 Maseratis in a garage up on a hill and they, this, they live in that huge house over there and they have tons of money and they send their kids to incredible colleges in the West and they like their strongmen to be strong. It's a sense of pride for them. Yeah. It's something that in the U.S. we look down on 
our leaders if they're too flashy or right. showy with their usually wealth, usually <laughs> usually we do if, if your governor lived in the largest house in the city and had a, a barn full of thoroughbred racehorses and 50 race cars and 17 yachts and 38 wives you'd be like hmm but there's a sense that's a strong man and if you're a, if he's your ruler you're you're in good shape so Saddam then was definitely that. There's a sense that I got living there that when people looked back that he kind of held everything together because he was so strong. Yeah, I mean, Saddam has a laundry list of terrible things that he did to people that lived in his country for sure. But he was a heavy lid on a, a very dangerous pot of soup. Not just the Sunni-Shiite conflict, but other things as well other things as well. And if you will, he was a buffer for the Sunni world against Shiite expansionism, against uh, the Persians, if you will, against mm -hmm. Iran. Uh, he could be a, a player in that against Soviet expansion to sort of try to unite the world behind him or the West behind him. He picked a fight with Iran, the Iran-Iraq war, mm -hmm. and that was very costly in terms of life. I think 10 or 15 year long war. But he was a strong man in that he... You know, under Saddam in in Iraq, you had I may be mistaken, but I've heard there were discos and there was um, there was a, there was electricity and there was water and there were things that are a little bit hard to find now in a lot of yeah. places. Mm -hmm. So there was infrastructure in place, there was stability in place, but it was a ruthless stability. If you crossed the line, your town became a parking lot. Right. And in in typical Assyrian or Babylonian fashion, it was that style of leadership. But it was, um, a lot of Iraqis will look back to the days of Saddam and go, he was mean, but we had hospitals. Mm -hmm. He was mean, but we had electricity. He was mean, but we had jobs. I have a lot of Iraqi friends that will tell me Baghdad was the most beautiful place to be when Saddam was in charge. That, like, it was safe. You could go out at night. You could go you know, do whatever you want to. And they kind of point at it and are like, well, look at it now. Mm -hmm. I think all of them would also say that Saddam was probably not that great of a guy, but they do. They kind of look at it as like, but he did this good thing. Um, he was a lid on a pot. And, and Iraq is not a country where everybody's going to come together and say, we're all Iraqis, let's all get along with each other. Is a country where they're going to say, your great, 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 grandfather did not come to my great, 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 great grandfather's help in 1200 BC and because of that we're not going to get along today mm -hmm. and there is um, there's not a natural affinity because they live in the same geographical area and in the west that in America that surprises us because we, we do that here we're all live in the same country and we're all going to figure out a way to, to get along mm -hmm. without revolts if possible mm -hmm. at least we have for the last 120 or 130 years so so why then did the U.S. kind of go, uh, Saddam, we're not a big fan of him anymore? Like, what was kind of the turning point for, for the U.S.? I mean, I know about the Gulf War, but I was like four when that happened. Yeah. So I don't really know <laughs> why exactly. Oh, goodness. There are people still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Podcast yeah. Hannah. Um, uh, sorry. Yeah. Asking the easy questions. There was a sense, Kuwait was part of the family for several thousand years until we drew lines and separated it from the rest of Iraq. Mm -hmm. So Saddam was, I took a gamble that I'll move into Kuwait 
reunite. Nobody's going to say anything. Yeah, I think you even got the nod from the American ambassador that that's not our business. That's your business. Do what you want. Yeah. And so he moved in. And I think uh, the world then sort of reacted to this is here we have a dictator moving on a neighboring small country and everybody's bells and whistles go off. They go ding, 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 World War II all over again. We've got right. a strong man on the move. And let him take one country, then he's going to take another, then he'll take another, and we know where this leads, so let's stop it right now. So I think there was a sense of, hmm. we're not going to do this. We're and not going to watch somebody start gobbling up countries around them, because we know it doesn't... One country's never enough. And do you think that that was true? Like, do you think Saddam would have just kept going? If he'd give a mouse a cookie? He's going to want Kuwait. <laughs> I don't know, but his neighbors or are very Syria, nervous. Or Jordan, right. or Iran. Uh, you know, of course, Iran will be nervous because sure. they're Shiite, and he's he you know he could he could rally the Sunni Muslim world against Iran if he tried, possibly. But then his Sunni neighbors are like, "Yikes, this guy's." I think the whole neighborhood became nervous. Mm-hmm. This guy's got an army now, and he's able to use it. I think everybody was nervous about that. And would he have kept going? I don't know. I guess there was enough suspicion that he would. Saddam still remained in power after that. How did that all happen? Well, this was the first George Bush. Mm-hmm. happened on his watch. Uh, he established a coalition. They went in, landed troops where? In Kuwait. Landed troops in Kuwait, and they marched towards where? Baghdad. Baghdad. It took how long? Three or four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and it was over. Um, and that was it. But there was a decision that, hey, if we... I believe the decision basically was, hey, if we go all the way to Baghdad and take out Saddam, then who's going to be over this country? Better an enemy that we know kind of idea. Or don't take the lid off the pot. Well, the British had done it twice, and both times they're like, you know, walk away with their hands up, and they're like, we can't do this. And they were a world empire at that time. I think there was a sense of, we've pushed him back out of Kuwait. We've severely hamstrung his army and his military capability. There is a sense of, okay, perhaps lesson learned. A world war has been averted, but let's not go take the lid off the pot. Just push him back into his boundaries, not necessarily... Yeah. Get rid of him entirely. And it was a, I mean, you were four years old, but it was a, quite a, if you will, sort of an antiseptic war. We just, we saw smart bombs and missiles mm-hmm. and things on TV and didn't hear about a lot of casualty. But I think among the Iraqis, I think uh, over 100,000 were killed. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a sense of among Iraq is that you didn't really do anything good for us. <laughs> and the, that you left before it was over. So, you know, you left Saddam in place. You don't do that when you win a war. So it's, mm-hmm. some of my Iraqi, Iraqi friends will joke, say, well, the first Gulf War is the one you lost, that America lost, because you you didn't finish. You, know, you, got, <laughs> you left before. You got tired and left and went home. There's a, huh. there's a little bit of a joke of that. Well, some interesting <laughs> things happened at the, at the close of that war. The President Bush called upon the people of Iraq to rise up and overthrow Saddam. Like, you want rid of them? Do it. And there was a sense, particularly among the Kurds, that, okay, America, big America with all these airplanes and everything, it just mm-hmm. told us, if you want to get rid of Saddam, go for it. And so there's a sense, and well, they're behind us. They're behind us. They'll help. That wasn't in the cards. Yeah. So the Kurds rose up and tried to do that, and Saddam jumped on them like a, a lion. It was a very scary time for the Kurds, and a lot of them fled to Turkey. Mm-hmm. into the mountains of Turkey in the cold winter, I believe it was of 90, 89, 90, 91. At this time, it was a little bit of the advent of 24-hour news cycles, and the world just sort of goes, this is terrible. Look at all these refugees living up in these cold mountains. And 
and the U.S. went in and established a no-fly zone in Northern Iraq. Said, if you go back to your homes, to your villages, then we'll make sure Saddam can't fly his gunships north of this certain line, and you can live in safety in your areas. And this is sort of the advent of the re region we call Kurdistan, if you will, where they had mm -hmm. a, a rule of their land that was not under Saddam's control. And they felt safe at least to some extent, and able to, like, pursue economy and education and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, they did a great job of establishing infrastructures through the decades, but there was also always a sense, I remember my first trip to Iraq, they would say, Saddam is the other side, you know, the other side of that hill is, is Iraqi mm -hmm. tanks. I mean, it's he's, he's right there. Mm -hmm. You never know. It's a very tenuous, yeah. like... We're here, and we're doing the best we can, but it also may all go south. Fast. Which plays into the mentality in the Middle East and into Iraq. It's like, we're okay today, so let's go have a picnic. <laughs> yeah. Right. But because you don't know, you never know what tomorrow will be like. Yeah. You never know what the next strongman or the next armies mm -hmm. and the next Mongol invasion or Turkish invasion or Syrian invasion or a Persian invasion or American invasion. Or, you don't know when the next invasion is going to be mm -hmm. and when the next dictator is going to roar, but you, you want to love life. I remember asking one of the families I visited about in their house, they had what we would consider like an outdoor plastic table as their table and chairs in their house. Yeah. And I was like, well, normally like... We use this kind of table outside in America. Like, why why don't you have a wooden one inside? And she was like, hmm, I think it's because if we have to leave, then this is easy to replace. Wow. Like, yeah. the, that sense, and I saw it play out more and more, like, why invest in really valuable things mm -hmm. here if, you know, tomorrow you may have to flee to the mountains right. and everything will get lost and then you'll have to start over. Yeah, why invest the time and effort into something that's going to get destroyed, mm -hmm. regardless of how well it's been built? Talk about disposable culture. Like, yeah. Yeah, so there's kind of that establishment of the Kurdish regional government area. And that is still around, obviously. We go in and out of Kurdistan all the time. Yeah. Um, but things in the south haven't been quite so stable, because Saddam does eventually get deposed within my lifetime. I yeah. do remember that. Yeah. I was, you know, an adult by then. <laughs> it took a while, though. Yeah, I believe it's after... It's a little fuzzy. <laughs> I was alive yeah. then, but now that I think about it, it's like, wait... You're on elementary school year? or middle school in this 2001? <laughs> I high school. I graduated from high school in 2002. Okay, That's all right. High, old enough that we should have been paying attention, but we weren't. We should have been paying attention, yeah. But for you, in high school, anytime you turn on the news, Iraq's on the news, probably. Yeah, for sure. Especially after 9-11, Iraq was in the news all the time. Yeah, yeah. 2001, the World Trade Center attacks, and you have the development of a... Of a and I, I don't know if you would credit this to one man or not, but you have the development of the Bush Doctrine, mm -hmm. and which is not necessarily respond to a threat. It's like, if you think there's a threat, then that's the time to act preemptive war. Prevent a war. Don't manage one after it's already started. Don't manage a disaster. Prevent it. So this is the Bush, mm -hmm. Bush Doctrine that there's legitimate reason to go to war if you think it can avoid a bigger war. A bigger war, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the mentality, yeah, from before with, like, don't start World War Three. You know, go in and stop it before it mm -hmm. gets... Yeah, and I think this big. is something as countries become strong enough, it's probably your natural, it's probably what happens. You're like, let's 
fix problems before they start. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with it before it starts. Mm-hmm. So the, that became known as the Bush Doctrine, a preemptive war or preemptive military action to avert possible or probable threat. And there was a possible or probable threat that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the calling card on this. Yeah, the like, WMDs. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we need to go. If he doesn't turn it over, if he doesn't step down, if he doesn't move to Libya, <laughs> whatever we want him to do, we're going to go in and get this. Had one. he been aggressive? At that point, like he never went back into Kuwait, but it wasn't like he. They thought that the 9/11 bombers came from Iraq, right? Like I think that's the part that I'm missing is that like they did have the WMDs theory, but it wasn't that Saddam was being especially aggressive, or was he? Does anyone know? Like, is that still the big question from that that time? Well, there's a a hundred different, a thousand different books written on this. I think there was a a lot of people had a lot to gain if Saddam were removed. Maybe it's competing uh, regimes, competing uh, ideologies, uh, competing branches of maybe Shiite or others. Maybe it was uh, Western interests, but there was a lot to be gained. And so there was a lot of effort made, whether it was uh, founded or not, Probably most of it was, but a lot of effort to pull out all the laundry on Saddam that okay. could possibly be and, and say, this guy, you know, maybe he didn't attack the World Trade Centers, but he's got something worse in mind. Right. And mm-hmm. he's capable of it because look at his, look his weapons. Look what he did to the Kurds look and he Halabja. did to the Kurds. Yeah, yeah he gassed, yeah. gassed whole villages. Look so his history of aggression. Yeah, and, he's, mm-hmm. he's... Same idea of preemptive strike yeah. would probably be aggressive again. He's bad news, and we don't need any more bad news. Bad. We don't need more bullies on the block. Mm-hmm. We just took a, a bad hit, and we're not going to let that happen again. So I think there was a sense of, if he doesn't turn over the weapons and step down, then that's it. We're, we're okay. coming in. And they did, because he didn't did. turn anything over. They did. And we landed troops where? In Kuwait. And marched where? To Baghdad? Yep. <laughs> did it still take three or four weeks? It did. How long did it take? The first one took 100 hours. This one, it didn't take long, because remember there was the... I remember seeing on the news uh, President Bush on a aircraft, aircraft carrier saying mission right. accomplished. Right, yeah. And then everything. <laughs> well, because they did shock and awe and just like bomb the heck out of Baghdad. I remember watching that on the news. Yeah, yeah. And and thinking even at that time like this seems a little extreme. Like I, it seemed extreme to me, but. And you could dissect it a hundred different ways, but with Saddam gone. Then there's a... He wasn't dead yet, though. He was just in hiding. Hiding in Mosul. Yeah. (laughs) I was in Mosul not long before that. Did you find him? No, I didn't. I didn't see him. I saw a lot of people with mustache and dark hair. (laughs) Well, that's that's not surprising. So there was a... um, Once again, you have just a lot of competing factors and and an overarching sense of... Okay, so the U.S., they, they move in, I think it was Paul Bremer they set up, but they set up a provisional government mm-hmm. over in Baghdad, there in the green zone, set up a government to manage the country, try to get the Sunnis and Shiites to work together, right. which should be a very easy thing sure. to do, and the Kurds I as mean, well. he did okay for a while, the U.S. governor person. He did okay. But the one, there, there's really only one <laughs> thing remember. that you know I've talked about Iraq is really not united, if you will. But there's one thing that does unite a lot of Iraq, and that is we don't want somebody from the West Set up as managing a... us mm-hmm. like we're a, a, a project mm-hmm. or that we belong to them. 
I think that that unites them. And once that's out of the way, then uh, everybody has their own interest. The Syrians, the Kurds, the Sunni, the Shia, everybody has their own interest and their own ideologies. And you can break those groups down in even finer groups. So everybody has their own, they want their own strong man in charge. Right. Because even amongst the Kurds, you know, the political factions there each have their own army and they each have their own oh, tribal these. leader and they end up in their own civil wars. Yeah, during these 10 years of the Kurdish no-fly zone, the Kurds fought each other in mm-hmm. serious wars. Yeah, towns 100 miles away from each other. Biggest and the strongest is the best. Possibly so, but you have a rock, once again, sort of disintegrating into uh let's get the westerners out and then we're gonna we're gonna play king of the mountain that's Mm -hmm. what happened okay right which kind of causes the rise of isis too because they kind of want to be the king of the mountain as well that's a whole other talk yeah (laughs) (laughs) we might get into that one eventually so that kind of brings us up into well about 2006 which is when i went to iraq at that point there's no more u.s governor they have parliament a parliament and like a they've set up a a president and a prime minister where like one of them is sunni and one of them is shiite Mm -hmm. and one of them is kurdish so like theoretically they all get to have power right that hasn't been super fantastic either though no the a little bit of the u.s philosophy or thought was okay, we're going to have a real democracy in the Middle East, if you will. They need to have elections. So if you have a Shiite majority country, it's going to hold an election for their prime minister. You know, who's going to win? Shiites. Right. And so the Shiites have been on the short end of the stick for 120 years. Mm -hmm. So what are they going to do? They're going to stomp on everyone else. Yeah. So the Sunni population and the Kurdish population become very disenfranchised with the Shiite leadership. And... um, that opens the door for ISIS okay. at that point. Because nobody can figure out, they can't get all the pieces to work together. I mean, it's a town like Mosul. We have the Shiite president stepping on our neck, but here's these Sunni um, renegades. Maybe they'll liberate us. They'll move in. The Shiite army doesn't want to protect the right. Sunni people, so, so we got rid of the, they get out. We got rid of the Shiites, but now we have Sunni ISIS. Mm-hmm. You know, it just Which goes, is not goes better. on and on. <laughs> Which is not better. No. But that's being pushed out now, and um, who's vying for control now? Iran is, you know, in its conflict with the U.S., and, like, the sanctions stuff that's going on is looking for support out of Iraq, and Iraq is still trying to play nice with the U.S. somehow, Mm -hmm. and I think they just got a new leader. And Russia's in the mix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in the mix. Everyone's kind of playing all in Syria right now, but... Kind of using it to some extent as a testing ground for everywhere else. Alexander the Great thought he could bring peace to the Middle East, and Napoleon thought he could too. And um, Napoleon went to the Middle East. I mean, I knew he made it to Egypt, but did he yeah. make it into the Middle East too? Well, that counts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess. Sure. We continue to have. Everybody's looking for a political solution for peace, for sure. Yeah. That maybe one exists out there. And at this point, you can't go back and redraw the lines because nobody wants to give up anything. Well, there's talk of redrawing. I mean, there have been even uh, American senators have proposed, you know, we need to establish, if we give the Kurds their own area, and then we give the Sunnis their own area, and we give the Shia Arabs their own area, and then we can sort of chop this thing up and 
it'll be peaceful. But the problem is, you go through cities like Mosul or Kirkuk, and it's not like the Kurds live on one side of the street and the Arabs live on the other side of the street. Right, a lot of they're married to each other in a lot of cases. Together. You can't mm-hmm. just like draw a line and mm-hmm. say. Like we did in North Carolina, South Carolina. Right. Like well, like or like the British did in India between India and Pakistan and said all the Muslims on that side, all the Hindus on this side. Like, it didn't work. Right. And it still is not working. There's still a lot of, I mean, it's an incredible amount of conflict. Right. Yeah. A lot of people say, well, what's, what's the solution? How do you solve a situation like Iraq? Yeah. And I think part of, part of that is realizing it wasn't really, before the West made it Iraq, it wasn't really solved then. It was mm-hmm. it was governed by, in a tribal capacity by strong men. There's a we have an aversion in the West to dictators. We don't like the idea, but in situations like that, it's it's the kind of ground where dictators do rise up again mm-hmm. and again, where strong men do rise up again and again mm-hmm. to control the area with such diverse people groups all in one area, people with different languages and cultures and customs and suspicions towards one another. You know, family and tribe mean a lot more than what's your flag. Mm-hmm. in the Middle East. So to try to get them all to live under one flag like we do in the West is not an easy. I don't I don't know that it's our job, but it's, if it is, it's not an easy job. So do you think that's that's that history is going to repeat itself and that the next person to bring stability to Iraq is probably going to be some kind of dictatorship if you could predict the future, which <laughs> you can't. If I had to predict the future, I would say within 15 years, somebody's going to land a bunch of troops in Kuwait and they're going to march their way to Baghdad. <laughs> And three or four weeks later, probably I suspect it's probably going to happen within uh, ten to twelve years. Hmm. You might guess. All right, <laughs> for unknown reasons. So we'll check back with you in ten to 10 twelve years. Ten to twelve years. Yeah. And you can say, "Haha, I told you so," and then you can have a crown. You can be the king. Of well, it has the been. King. It's we got it from Kings R Us. Yeah. Kings R Us. Yeah. Slightly used. <laughs> if Turkey knocked on the door and said, "We'll solve a rock for you," I think we'd say. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> would you like a king? The They're Kurds would king. not like that. No, no, no. The Kurds are just keep getting caught in the middle, which is so sad. But. That was thorough. And confusing. As as all things having to do with the Middle East tend to be. Yeah. I and think I, that may be the way it should be, though. I know we got our empires mixed up. It doesn't matter, really. We're it's not the here pattern. For chronology. <laughs> it's, there's a pattern. Can you edit that and put everything in order? Sure. Am I going to? <laughs> Probably not. But you're Hannah from the podcast. That's true. I like to leave things mildly chaotic. Okay. <laughs> it comes from living in the Middle East for Or so North long. Carolina. Or North Carolina, yeah. <laughs> our country, our state says north, but we're in the south. It's confusing. I heard that North Dakota wanted to change their name to Dakota, and South Dakota sued them in court. <laughs> Because he wants to be North Dakota. Right. I mean, that's just a rumor, but I heard it was true. They wouldn't let him do it. That's great. Where North and South Carolina, we just call ourselves the The Carolinas. And we get along quite swimmingly. Mm -hmm. Except for Western North Carolina, who don't like anybody. But especially Tennessee. Poor Tennessee. You can find us at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram or on our website at servantgroup.org. Yeah, and if you have a question that we haven't answered yet, send us an email or Facebook message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. So then Saddam didn't really... 
stay. See how she's good at her own positive? Yeah, it's just really wrong positive. <laughs>